The Affordable Care Act has been quite controversial, and you might actually be surprised to find out that some of its biggest critics actually criticize the process rather than the outcome. Today on Healthcare Focus, the American Constitution meets healthcare. I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev, and you're listening to Healthcare Focus, where we scan healthcare news and industry research every week so you don't have to. This is why in a few moments I will sign an executive order taking the first steps to providing millions of Americans with Obamacare relief. On President Trump's first day into the office, he issued an executive order which repealed the Affordable Care Act. And it was the Republicans' party's opinion that the reform was not really viable, that it just put too much of a burden for both the government and the, the population. Now, as you can guess, some people who have higher income may not have been in favor of subsidizing lower-income people. Some people who were healthy and young may not have felt compelled to support the risks and the costs associated with aging or just the unhealthy population that was now entering the pool. But the side that we hear less often are the people who are less well-off, but who are in the bracket right above the, the one that is really covered in the poverty range under the Affordable Care Act. These people had an insurance that was once optional, and suddenly it was mandatory, but too expensive, because they didn't get any subsidy, but they still had to buy the insurance. And with this, we've just touched the heart of the matter. But to really understand this fully, we have to go back to 1933. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You're familiar with this quote. It's President Roosevelt's inaugural address. It happened on March 10th, 1933. He had just been elected. But the passage right before this, which we hear a little bit less often, actually gives you a little insight on the circumstances of his mandate and his election. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. Roosevelt had just succeeded Herbert Hoover. And some people felt that Hoover just hadn't really done a great job to help the economy bounce back during his mandate. It was right after the Great Depression, and during his inaugural speech, Roosevelt really laid the ground for what would become the New Deal. And you have to understand, of course, it's the, the Congress that actually approved it in uh, 1935, even though often we, we credit Roosevelt himself, um, the Work Progress Administration that got signed. And that marked a real shift in America's history. It was really the beginnings of uh, Social Security as we know it. Now, before this, the federal government just didn't really meddle with people's happiness. The Constitution does grant the government the right or even obligation to promote the wellness uh, and the, the welfare of all its people, but it's not really explicit. And this is the one thing you have to understand about the American Constitution. 
Anything, any obligation, any right that is not explicitly given to the federal government is in fact reserved for the state. The government cannot touch it. But there's this one clause, the promotion of welfare for its people, that really leaves a lot of ambiguity. I mean, how far does this clause go? And you have to realize that this is the whole debate around the Affordable Care Act. How far can the government go? How far must the government go in order to protect its people, to promote the welfare of its people? This is when things start to get sticky. The Supreme Court starts looking into different laws and judges that portions of the Roosevelt New Deal are actually anti-constitutional. For example, 1935, case of the poultry. 1936, case on mining. These things are not commerce, the Supreme Court says. Why commerce? It turns out that there's another clause in the Constitution that's just as ambiguous as the one on people's welfare. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, Congress has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among several states and with the Indian tribes. That's the interstate commerce provision. So you might be thinking this is quite strange. Among states, like the whole point of independence was freedom and autonomy. What exactly is this law trying to accomplish? If you look back at the time, I have to remember the, the context. They had just became independent and all these states were trading and having commerce and they were imposing interstate taxes. And that created really a lot of friction amongst the, sta uh, the states. And some people had argued at the time, and they had passed the law actually because of that, that alleviating the taxes amongst the states and between the states would really keep them from um, going to war, essentially. It would create peace and harmony. And of course, they would still keep them up for foreigners, but amongst themselves, it would really help them become one. And that's essentially the spirit of the constitution. But along comes Wickard and Fiddleburn, and that's a case in 1942, which actually is debating about something that happened a little bit before, 1938, the Agri Agricultural Adjustment Act. Um, this farmer is going against the government. He just had a quota imposed on his wheat production. But the wheat is for his own consumption, not it's not leaving the state, it's just going to his family, he's consuming it, and then maybe local markets. So he's questioning the power of the federal government to apply a national quota on the wheat that he is producing. I'm not partaking in interstate commerce, he says. And he loses. He loses because the Supreme Court answers, well, if all farmers started doing only local activities and consuming locally, then there wouldn't be interstate commerce. And interstate commerce is what gives us harmony between the colonies and so whether you want it or not you are an actor in the interstate commerce the american media isn't wrong when they're framing the affordable care debate in the light of uh, ironically affordability and expenses i mean it's an issue but for some people that's not the issue the issue as they see it is something about principles about people's right not to be obligated to partake into interstate commerce um, or if you want to be forced by their government to um, do some commercial activity. And, you know, 1942 set a precedent. Some people question that precedent. And so the debate goes on. You've been listening to Healthcare Focus with Karina Paraskeev. 
Karina has a master in international business and is now completing her master of science in healthcare policy and management with data analytics at Carnegie Mellon University. You can find more episodes just like this one on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out the show notes for our sources and resources and subscribe to our podcast to get the next episode delivered straight to your device.